0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make this happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. And this week's podcast sits really squarely Right in the center of that. This is going to be the first of two parts. We didn't plan it this way, but then we don't usually plan exactly every podcast. It's an emergent property of the moment. I spent a lot longer than I anticipated talking to Alan because his story, his clarity of thinking, the way that he expresses things feels so important and so timely and so right. To the extent that I didn't do the usual five minutes of testing the sound and then head in, we were in right from the moment of first recording, and I realised that about five minutes in. So we don't have the usual start. We just started talking, and I hope it's immensely clear why we ended up doing that and why we have two podcasts. So, people of the podcast, please welcome the first part of Two Parts with Alan Watson Featherstone. Good morning, Alan. It's lovely to see you. How are you?
1: Good to see you too, Manda. I'm very good. I'm uh, on the ninth day of a fast at the moment, so I'm feeling really... Oh my goodness,
0: Alan. Nine. How many days are you going to do in total?
1: Uh, Well, probably 14 uh, up to this weekend. 14
0: days of not eating.
1: Yeah. So I'm drinking. I drink herbal tea and a little bit of apple juice and uh, a little bit of miso in the evening, so that right. satisfies the the taste buds. Yeah. Nothing and solid.
0: Also, it. Mm-hmm. also, so you got some electrolytes because otherwise your body will begin to to not really love it. I think the most I've ever done was five days, so I am in awe. And is there a reason behind this? You just fancy doing it? Well, I have a number
1: of reasons is spring clean for the body. Uh, I need to lose a little bit of weight. The other thing is my wife is half um, Persian and half Japanese and uh, she grew up with a tradition of fasting uh, leading up to the spring equinox which is yes. the Persian New Year of Oh is it? That's part of the culture so we're both doing it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Goodness
0: and so is it part of Persian culture, too fast for fourteen days leading up to the equinox.
1: Yeah, um, I'm not sure if it's exactly fourteen days, but yes, in the lead up to it. Huh? But they they don't do a complete fast; they do an Islamic type fast, where they're fasting during the hours of daylight, right? And, and they eat, you know, when it's dark.
0: Gosh, but you're you're not doing that thing. And do you do this every year?
1: We haven't done it like this this year and uh, before. Uh, Although my wife has fasted sometimes in the past at this time of year, but I've done a couple of fasts like this in the past two years, one for 12 days and one for 19
0: days. (laughs) Goodness. And so, because this is not how I had planned to start, but we are where we are. And I always think of this podcast as being an emergent property of the moment and of the time. And I don't eat before midday any day. So I Basically, I eat between 12 and 8. So I feel always very virtuous for the fact that I'm fasting from when I get up until afternoon. So the idea of going for 19 days, my goodness, is 14 days even. How? At what point do you stop getting headaches? This is a genuinely serious question because now I'm thinking maybe this is something I might want to do one day. Because I used to get really quite bad headaches around days three and four, and I've never gone beyond day five.
1: I've not had that as an issue. Okay. I think if I was just doing a, a, a pure water fast, that might be an issue perhaps. But because I'm having, you know, a little bit of herbal tea, a little bit of warm apple juice and, you know, a cup of just pure miso right. um, in the evening, I think that avoids that sort of issue.
0: Brilliant. And so are you in the kind of lightheaded, very clean feeling by now, nine days in?
1: I'm not lightheaded. I'm very clear. I feel I feel good in my body right. because I've been a bit overweight. So it's great to shed a few pounds. And I feel quite, yeah, connected with myself, you know, without having the the drag of the body processing food. It's like I'm more connected with my spirit somehow. Right. I'm a bit purer. Okay.
0: And are you doing meditations that are linked to this that you wouldn't otherwise do? Because I know that you meditate quite a lot anyway.
1: No, nothing specific. Um, I'm spent the day out in nature yesterday. I do that usually one day a week. that's that's a lot of my meditation time, if you like, being out in nature, being still, and yes, yeah, just being observant
0: and the great thing about lockdown is that we are still able to go out if we live in a place where out is is available. You live at Findhorn. I would have thought you're you're pretty much in the natural world all of the time, are you not? Do you go summer specific no? Uh, in the
1: lockdown I've been going along the coast so just east of here there's a beautiful stretch of coastline starting about 7 miles east of here and going for 4 miles right. and it's stone, so it's fantastic cliffs there's caves, there's sea stacks, there's wonderful eroded rock formations and some of it is relatively easy to access, some is more challenging to ac- access, so there's not many people go there. And it's this little strip of wilderness between the land and the sea. You know, the land here is all heavily farmed, and of course the sea has you know, got lots of traffic because of the Murray Firth and fishing and everything. Right. But the coastal strip is the wilderness, and it's, it's a wonderful, magical place. So.
0: Yes, and sea stacks. Do you, do you climb, Alan?
1: Uh, I climbed one of the sea sacks yesterday, but it doesn't require anything technical. But there there were people climbing the cliffs there yesterday when I was there.
0: Anyway, we're getting off track, getting on to the things that fascinate me. So I should have said at the start, welcome to Accidental Gods podcast. So now that we're halfway in, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast, Alan. And thank you for taking the time in the middle of your fast. I am genuinely very grateful. So, This is an emergent property, we'll get to where we get to, but I really wanted to talk to you about your life, about how you came to be where you are now, and particularly about the route to Trees for Life and then what's happened since, where your life has taken you since, largely because I see this podcast as a way of helping people find agency in a world that is Stripping away your agency if we let it. And that it seemed to me that you were someone who who grasped agency with both hands and made it happen. So I know you've told this story before, it's it's a TED talk, it's various other things, but can you give us the maybe the edited highlights of how how Trees for Life came about and particularly your own process in the creation of that?
1: Certainly. Thanks, first of all, for the invitation to be part of your podcast series. Um, We don't have time to talk about it now, but I like the title, Accidental Gods. I think it's very fitting in many ways. So um, my story, I suppose, um, goes back a long way. Um, I'm Scottish originally I grew up in a sort of Very normal conventional family But I always felt like the odd one out Mm. And my parents sent me to a boarding school When I was 11 And it was a very archaic 19th century institution Stuck in the past And I hated it And it made me a rebel It made me question everything And I went to university after that to study electronics. I don't know why I did that. It was a crazy idea. I lost interest
0: for <laughs> Part of being a rebel, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah, but um, I really flowered at university after the very restricted um, situation of a boarding school, you know, away in the country, cut off from the world for most of the year, boys only.
0: Was it Gordonston, the one that the that Prince Charles was sent to?
1: No, called Strathallon, yeah, in Perthshire. We used to play uh, cricket and rugby with Gordonston. There's a whole circuit of boarding schools in Scotland. They're all kind of operating in a similar fashion. I gave a presentation last year or two years ago at Gordonston about the work of Trees for Life. Gordonston, I think, has always been a bit more open and, you know, experimental. It's, it's still got elements from you know, that past, but its more it's got one foot at least in the 21st century. But I haven't spent any time there, so I can't say for sure, but that's
0: my impression. Right. We were back too. You went to uni yeah. and you did electronics. And you and I'm guessing you were at uni at a time when university was free. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we hadn't actually decided to turn the whole thing into a neoliberal slave trap yet. And I can imagine that disparity between the... You know, these Scottish schools are designed, they're put where they are because it's as far from civilization as you can get, so there's basically no escape. You would die if you tried to run away. So you've gone from that level of restriction to a flourishing university at the time when university was there to be a life's exploration. How did that feel? Well,
1: it was, it was tremendously liberating. I actually went to Essex University. Um, in 1971 and at the time it was the most radical and liberal university in the country and there were regular demonstrations and protests and student occupations you know and it was a hotbed of left-wing activism.
0: Yay your parents must have been thrilled.
1: (laughs) I really flourished there I got into a lot of student activities I worked in the student um Whole Food Shop, I helped run the Film Society, I did programs on the student radio station, and uh, a lot of things like that. I put my foot into politics one year but got very quickly disillusioned with student politics and got completely disillusioned with the academic world and the course that I was on. It was very abstract, very impersonal, and it was very clear to me it was designed to train people to become a productive unit in society.
0: Right, and and you didn't really fancy being a productive unit in society,
1: absolutely not, no. Because I also had what I considered to be my spiritual awakening when I was at university.
0: Oh, tell us more about that.
1: Like many people at the time, and of course, still today, I experimented a bit with, um, you know, mind-altering drugs. I didn't. I never smoked marijuana because I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I always felt, why do I want to do that? My mother was a chain smoker, and I hated smoke. <laughs> so, but um. And when I went to university, I was already doing a type of meditation that somebody at my boarding school had taught me without telling me what it was. Oh, yes. He used it as a technique to relax and go to sleep. He never said it was meditation, but that's what it was.
0: Well, this wasn't one of the teachers, I'm guessing. This was another pupil, was it? No,
1: it was a teacher. It was a German teacher who arrived just before I left. And wow. that was interesting. You know, there's there's always um, like the yin-yang, you know, in the middle of the dark, the black part of the yin-yang. <laughs> there's a little circle so, white. Yes. You know, even in the boarding school, you know, there's a little bit of um, something different. Right. So I was doing that. So most of my friends were smoking regularly and I didn't do it. And then after a couple of years, I was out one day with some of them on a boating trip on a, a little waterway nearby at the weekend. And we were in a rowing boat and the, the sun was shining and the, the drops of water from the ores when they came out every time they were sparkling and my two friends were high on acid at the time and they were describing the sparkles and what it meant and what their experience was and I thought I can't just dismiss this you know there's something here they're having something meaningful so I experimented with LSD a little bit and it didn't give me any answers but it got me asking the right questions.
0: Oh, well done, that man! So you didn't see sparkles in water that told you the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? No,
1: but I, I did see visual things sometimes. But one day, on one of these, I had this experience of feeling this question come into my head. It just like came down from the ceiling of the room I was into my head, and the question was, "What is the purpose of life?"
0: Right. Which, of course, is the key question for all of us.
1: Yes. Up till then, I dismiss that you know I was I was coming from a rational scientific background my course was electronics you know so I was coming from a scientific logical field and there was no purpose to life it was the result of a chance encounter of some pre-organic molecules billions of years ago <laughs> you know it was an accident right. and in this moment when this question came into my head I knew without a shadow of a doubt there was a purpose to life I didn't know what it was Right. And that question burned in me for the next week or two, long beyond the effects of the psychedelic. Mm. And one day I had this insight, this revelation. And it was as a result of this exercise I'd been doing about deep relaxation. Okay. You know, where I would lie in bed usually, I could it sometimes sitting up, but usually it was in bed, I would and I would consciously relax starting with my toes my feet my ankles moving up my legs the fingers everything and i would get into this different state right and my my realization was when i was doing that that my consciousness was withdrawing from my body as i relaxed and that i'd actually had this experience of who i was was it was embedded in my body but it wasn't my body And I I always felt like me was coming up somewhere around my chest or something like that.
0: So you're having genuinely mystical primary realizations that lots of other people go to other spiritual teachers to be taught. But you were arriving at these firsthand, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So my insight was, I am not my body. I live in this body, but I am not my body. My identity is something other. Right. And my revelation, personal revelation rather grandiose, but it was it was tremendously exciting. It was like, wow and my life is about discovering who I am right And allowing that self, the spiritual self, the inner self to flourish and to flower to come into full expression.
0: And did you share this with your friends at university? Were there a group of you who were coming into similar realizations at the same time or was this unique? to you do you think?
1: Um, I didn't really have anybody I felt I could talk to about it at the time and I stayed in that state for a day or two until I asked myself the next question which was okay how do I go about this how do I go about developing myself right I didn't have an answer to that although interestingly enough I got a clue sometime later quite independently Again, through some friends, we did a a sort of seance type thing using, you know, a homemade Ouija board, you know, where somebody had a, they had a round table and they put some, they cut up pieces of paper and put all the letters of the alphabet on it, turned them upside down around the edge and then put a sort of like a, an old round tobacco tin on the centre upside down and everybody had to put their finger on it. And then they asked, you know, invited a spirit present. And... We got two things. The first thing was a bit weird, and um, it was a bit strange. I can't remember what it said now. And we stopped in a break, and then we came back and did it again, and we got something which was very profound, and it, it talked about, it says, you know, the, the, the thing would move around. Yeah. And in the break, I was so skeptical of this. In the tea break, I tried to move it by myself. I said, somebody's just manipulating this, but I couldn't move it in the way it was moving when we all had fingers on it. And so there was a genuine thing going on. And when we did this a second time, something very profound came through. And it said the first thing was, you know, something negative from in the astral plane. Oh, right. But the second thing came out with this message. I can't remember of the details of it all. But the thing that stayed with me ever since was you are the love you create.
0: Whoa. You spelled that out with a tobacco tin on a table. It was spelled out for you. Yes, yes, yes. That was spelled out. Excellent. You are
1: the love you create.
0: And how did that land with you?
1: That lands with me as, as a deep truth. I feel that is what we are here on earth to learn, to manifest, to embody, and to, that is our gift to the world.
0: Brilliant. And did that land with you in that way then as well? Is that, that You were in a space where you could hear that because I'm thinking – The way that we're teaching with accidental gods, we're endeavouring to get people in touch with their heart space. And a lot of people, quite reasonably and rightly, given the history of our culture, have real trouble doing that. But it sounds to me as if you were in a space by then where that could settle in and become the foundation of your life. Not in any conscious way. (laughs) I mean, it's it's easy for me
1: looking back now to link these things together. At the time, these were just events in my life. And this was in my final year at university. I had this huge black hole right. ahead of me. What am I going to do when I graduate? He's
0: possibly being an electronic engineer might not have been your thing by then.
1: Exactly. I've long since lost interest in it, but it was like, what am I going to do? So I the previous summer, before my final year, I'd gone to Canada. I'd worked in Toronto for four weeks and then I'd hitchhiked across Canada Um, all the way from Toronto to Vancouver Island, from Vancouver Island back to Newfoundland and then back to Toronto in eight weeks.
0: And Canada's amazing. But you came home. I I think if I'd done that, I'm not sure I'd ever bought a ticket home.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The most important thing for me was in the Rocky Mountains in Canada. You know, I spent a few days there in Banff and Jasper National Parks and the big mountains, the lakes, the untouched forests, the wildlife came up to our car you know when the car was in when I was hitchhiking you know right outside the car window and it was a revelation it was like wow this is the world of nature this is the way the world is supposed to be so that was what I thought after my in my final year what am I going to do the idea I had I'm going to travel I'm going to experience the world there's I need to open myself to the world and find something and I also had this deep yearning to do something to make the world a better place. Right. I've always felt there's been an altruistic element. You know, I look around uh, ever since I was a, a young teenager and think the world could be so much better than it is. And I remember, you know, I don't know what age it was drawing pictures of cities, you know, with no cars and, you know, that were designed for people and, you know, all sorts of things like this. So that has always been in inside me. It's been a part of me. So my, Thing was, I'm going to travel. So, I didn't even stay at university to pick up my degree. I did get a token degree. (laughs) Didn't mean much. I didn't even stay to get that. I within a week of finishing exams and everything, I was gone, and I didn't come back to Scotland for three and a half years. (laughs) So I went to Canada. I worked for a bit, but my my mission was to go to South America. I had this impulse. I don't know where it came from. This feeling to go to South America. So I traveled there when I was 21. Uh, overland from mexico to bolivia seven months and i learned spanish on the way and I, that was that was this was the next stage of me coming out you know the first stage of coming out and going to university then this was coming further out into the world and i didn't find what i was looking for which was what am i going to do with my life i didn't find a way to make a difference i saw the destruction of the rainforest the military governments oppressing their people all the bad stuff that i'd protested and campaigned about as a student was there in my face Mm, right and I, I became a bit cynical at the time because I felt like it's too late for most people. You know, We've got to educate people starting from their childhood years in a different way because by the time people have gone through the educational system, which I've just had an experience mm-hmm. of, they've been conditioned and brainwashed to become a unit of society. That's what happens. And they go on and you know they get you know, a career and a mortgage and they're tied in and they're stuck. Yes. And I was really wanting to avoid that. But I still didn't find what I was looking for. Right. So I made a second trip to South America a year later. In between, I'd worked in Canada to raise some money. And at the end of that second trip, I was back in Canada and I decided to come home to Scotland to see my family, also because I was planning to emigrate to Canada because uh, I love the country. Yeah. Um, I had a girlfriend there by that time. I had a job which got me out into the wilderness for some of the time. I was working um, This is kind of... a. Uh, a bit of a mixed bag in a way. I was working as a surveyor doing exploration work for mining companies, the very people tearing the earth apart. But I was I was one of the people on these surveys. We got to go out into the wilderness. We had encounters with grizzly bears and moose. Uh-huh. And I spent a winter in the Yukon where it was minus 40 degrees, you know, camped, you know, um, an hour's flight from the nearest road or house. And I had these tremendous wilderness experiences, but I was part of the machinery of the the rape of the planet. Yeah. It gave me enough money from working for six months of the year to live and travel the rest of the year. So I was planning to do that. That was my future. So I travelled across Canada and, and I was in New York staying with a friend who had been a student with me at university before coming back home to Scotland. And two days before my flight home, After three and a half years away in a little shop in in, uh, Manhattan in Greenwich Village, I was looking for something called the Mother Earth News magazine, a back-to-the-land sort of permaculture-type magazine, although permaculture didn't exist yet, and I'd seen it in a vehicle I would got a ride in when I'd been hitchhiking. So I was in this little shop, and it was a kind of one of these alternative shops, you know, a bit of herbalism, um, a bit of crafts and candles, um, alternative magazines, and one rack of books. And I felt irresistibly drawn to this book rack. And there was this book that seemed to pull me black with a photograph on the cover, and it was called The Findhorn Garden.
0: I remember that book.
1: Yeah. And I had a quick flick through it, and the pictures really drew me in because I'd begun to discover a creative talent of nature photography myself by then. Okay. And the photographs seemed to really speak to me. Although they were in black and white, there was a radiance that shone through them. And I read these messages that accompany something Photographs from what they were termed as the devas, the spirit of the plants. And it was all about plants have consciousness, plants have intelligence, plants have purpose. Mm. And we can communicate with them. Yes. And we need to change our relationship from exploitation and domination to one of harmony, of cooperation and co creation. Yes. Co creation with nature. And that just rang all the bells. It was one of those moments where it's like, Seeing something in black and white was, I know this inside myself, but I'd never been able to articulate it or express it or make it conscious until that moment. And it was like a mirror, you know. Sometimes, I think many people have that experience, seeing something externally. It's like, ah, this is truth inside Yes,
0: And feeling it on a bodily sense so that it's undeniable. Yes. Yeah. So when I came back to Scotland
1: a few days later, I found out about Findhorn and they run educational programs. So I came here in early 1978 and did the Experience Week. And I came expecting an experience of nature, <laughs> which I read about in the book, but actually I arrived in the coldest winter Scotland had had in 30 years and there was um, 30 centimeters of snow everywhere. The Findhorn Garden, the famous garden of the book, was invisible.
0: Right, under a foot of snow, yes. <laughs> Doesn't the world organize things for us? So instead you experienced community, I guess. Yeah, I
1: experienced something much more important in a way and a key step in my own development, and that was being in a group of like-minded people. Yeah. And I felt like from the first day where everybody was encouraged to introduce themselves, first thought was, get out of this, <laughs> A circle of 25 strangers and they're asking me to talk deeply and personally about myself. Yeah. I was a very shy young man, you know. The thought of speaking in public in a group context terrified me. Fortunately, the circle, you know, the people leading it, focalizers we call them at Findhorn, um, they went around the circle and I was situated, not deliberately, but just by chance so-called, near the end. So I heard most of other people before it came my turn and hearing them, it was like, wow, these people are just like me. They're asking deeper questions. They're looking for meaning in their lives. They're looking to make a positive difference in the world. Right. And that gave me the courage to speak and share my truth. When I'd been working for this survey company, you know the people I worked with were all, you know, what they're called in North America, rednecks. The, the you know, they will be Trump supporters. Yep. They're out to make as much money as quickly as possible. Doesn't matter what the damage to the planet is, you know. And I was the secret Greenpeace supporter in their midst who never dared <sighs> admit that. You know, so I'd been leading this double life. I couldn't share what was really important for me. So coming to horn. I had the chance to do that, to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be heard. Yeah. And the whole thing about my week at Findhorn initially was encapsulated by a message I found in a bathroom, which is very interesting because I don't know if you know the history of Findhorn, but you know, one of the founders, the founders, Peter and Eileen Caddy and their friend Dorothy McLean and three children from the Caddies lived in a caravan together for a number of years. That was where the community started and Eileen Caddy couldn't meditate there because of commotion, children, young boys running around, so she went to the toilet block in the caravan park to meditate, and that's where she got all her guidance. So I don't get guidance when I meditate. I don't get clear messages most of the time. I get an intuition or a feeling sometimes, but I got guidance in a toilet at Findhorn, and the guidance was a little quotation that somebody had cut out of a magazine and pinned on the wall. And you know how in a magazine, you know, you got an article and there's blocks of text and then they'll they'll highlight one in big letters. So this was one of those. And it was from the Russian writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yay. And I read some of his books in the past, but this was nothing to do with, you know, um, the gulag or anything like that. It was a very simple quote that said, if you wanted to put the world to rights, where would you start with yourself or with others? End of quote. Uh. Right. And that, in this week at Finnhorn, hit the nail on the head for me because I realised I'd been trying to change the world by changing others. You know, it was those military governments I'd experienced in South America. It was greedy companies. It was corrupt politicians. They were the problem. They needed to change. And I'd exerted, you know, quite a lot of time. I'd been on protests and demonstrations. I tried to set up a recycling centre when I was in Vancouver in Canada and I had zero result to show for it. Right. Nothing had changed. And it was getting worse. It's still getting worse in many cases in the world today.
0: There's probably recycling in Vancouver by now, though.
1: <laughs> yes, but the overall trend <laughs> is in the wrong direction still. Yeah. So the whole focus of Finhorn is that change has to come from within. And that was my revelation. I need to start putting the values of my heart into practice in my life. And what happened in my week at Findhorn was I got an experience of that because I always felt like my ideal life can only happen once all the problems of the world are solved and we've got good governments and, you know, all that stuff. That's preventing me. And when I was at Findhorn, living with like-minded people, working consciously to give love to the plants in the garden or to the dishes or to the food that we prepared in the kitchens, all those things, it was like, there's nothing stopping me doing this right now, except my own sense of limitation. Brilliant. So that was my turning point in terms of really taking more responsibility for my life, not giving my power away. That was a key step in the journey of claiming my power and expressing my power, the power of my heart. Yes the power of spirit that's in me. And spirit is in all of us. And many people, I think, never find the way to connect with it and to find their power and to express it. But I think that's what we're all here on Earth to learn and to align that with um, the quality of love. Yes.
0: Yes. And somebody told me that they'd been speaking to an astrologer recently who said, and I'm going to misquote this, Fiona, I'm sorry, but it, it was along the lines of, Now is the time, and we're a long time after you first went to Findhorn, but but now in the next, this year and the next years is the time where love stops being an idea and becomes consciousness. And if we can do that, that seems to me that that is what we're here for. So I really, for the people listening and for me, that there was nothing stopping me except my own sense of limitation, and that realizing that was what was so empowering for you. Yeah. So what did you do?
1: Well, I stayed at Finhorn for a second week. And just before I came to Finhorn, I had applied to emigrate to Canada. And my application ran into all sorts of unexpected obstacles. <laughs> at the time, I had a friend in Canada who was an immigration officer and he coached me He told me how, what I needed to do. I needed to demonstrate, you know, I met all the criteria. Good education. Could speak French because Canada is bilingual. I'd studied French at school. I spoke a bit of French. Uh, Had somebody who could sponsor me there. I had an aunt in Canada. Uh, Had a job offer. So I had a job offer from the company I'd been working for and had an aunt who could sponsor me. But it turned out my aunt had never taken out Canadian citizenship at the time. She'd been there for 20 years, so she couldn't sponsor me. And then the job offer, they rejected that and said, there's people out of work in this field. We're not going to let you in to do that job. So the application just fell apart while I was in (laughs) the Right. So in the second week when this was going on, I just felt, yeah, this, this is feedback from the universe. You know, I need to really, I've found what I'm looking for. And it wasn't the place. It wasn't Findhorn. But what I found was the courage to start living from the heart. Right. So I actually went back to Canada. I had an interview with joining Findhorn. I was accepted. But I said, I want to go back to Canada for the summer because I've got unfinished business there. I've got a girlfriend there. And, you know, I also wanted to see if I could incorporate these values and the changes I've been finding Findhorn into life. I didn't need to be at Findhorn to do that. Right. Very wise. But I also felt. I need to be at Finton because this is where I can serve. This is where I can really contribute and make a difference. So I went back to Canada and I made a lot of changes in my life. I quit the job. Yay! I had enough. You know, I had enough money to survive. Uh, I didn't need to earn money. I had enough money saved up by then. Um, I became vegetarian, and I, you know, I'd been thinking about that but hadn't done it. But I'd seen in my travels in South America, the rainforest getting cut down to create cattle pasture. Yeah. And though I don't want to be part of that. I can claim my power and not be part of that by not eating meat. My circle of friends changed. Yeah, I, I began to meditate more regularly and I started volunteering for a spiritual organization. that was organizing a big uh, conference called the World Symposium on Humanity. Wow. And every time I made one of these changes, It seemed like my life changed as well. When I found the book in New York City, I'd never heard of Findhorn, Hmm. although I grew up in Scotland, (laughs) never heard of the place, and gone halfway around the world and found out about it in New York, most unlikely place perhaps. But again, it's like that little black circle in the middle of the white part of the yin yang. But after being here, when I went back to Canada, somehow Findhorn was everywhere. I began meeting people who had been to the community. I found magazine articles about the community. I walked into a bookshop one day and met somebody who had been involved with me and tried to set up the recycling centre the previous year. We were having a quick catch-up, and I said, oh, I've been to Scotland and I'm planning to go back and live at Findhorn. He showed me the book he had under his arm. It was a Findhorn book, you know. So it was like my life, because I started embodying the values of my heart, I changed and because of that my experience of the world changed too. I began to resonate and draw to myself like-minded people, situations, groups, organizations, and find myself in situations and things happening that supported me in my journey. Right. Thank you. So that took a period of six months. And then I came back to Findhorn in late 1978, joined the community. And I've been here ever since. And when I joined the community, I was asked in my membership interview, what did I think I could bring? What did I have to offer? And I don't remember all the things I said, but the most important thing that stayed with me is deepening a connection with nature and caring for the environment and doing something positive for the environment. Hmm. Because when I'd come to Findhorn, you know, I'd been inspired by the book, this talk of co-creation with nature. But when I arrived, most of the community was living in caravans, which were radiating heat up into the atmosphere. And I'd been trying to set up a recycling centre in Vancouver. There was no recycling being done at Findhorn in those days. So although there was this work of cooperation with nature in the garden... The consciousness had not percolated through into other aspects of the community. So I felt I had something to offer there. So within a few months, I started collecting paper for recycling and I began working in one of the kitchens, but I very quickly got drawn into the garden because in those days, everybody had to share rooms and my roommate was a gardener and he saw me bring these sort of dead and dying houseplants that I found and collected and bringing them back to life and he said we've got to get you into the garden so I, I worked in the garden for four years and that was really important because that was where I learned some of the fundamental principles of that Findhorn is based upon mm. I had no experience of gardening and the previous gardener had shifted jobs quite suddenly and wasn't available to train me so I had to, no person to show me what to do I had to turn to the garden itself
0: You were the only person in the garden I was expecting you to be part of a gang of about 16 people but no
1: there were other people in the garden but I was I was in the vegetable garden and the others were doing other parts of the gardening the flowers and um, different areas and that was the way it turned out so um, I had to basically turn to the garden itself which was perfect actually it was challenging at the time because I'm somebody coming from a logical you know partially scientific background I like to be prepared and trained and understand things and I was thrown in the deep end, but it was actually just perfect because I had to cultivate powers of observation. And um, in the spring here, in particular, you know, just as we're coming into now, things grow very quickly in Scotland because we've got so much daylight after dark winters. You know, by the time we get to midsummer, we've got twenty hours of daylight, almost at Finnhorn. So things grow quickly. So I was able to see plants growing, and I was able to notice what they needed. You know. And plants grow by themselves, vegetables grow by themselves. But what I began to discover is that yes, they need compost, they need water, they need light. But when they have an added ingredient, they grow better. And that added ingredient is human love. Right. Because like everybody I suppose when I started growing things I have some favorite vegetables I like to grow the things I like to eat you know runner beans courgettes you know um those things and I could see them every day I could see them growing you know they'll, they'll grow very quickly I could notice the difference and I built a relationship with them right so every day I'd go out to the garden I'd go and look at them and say hello and how are you doing and you know do you need uh, pollinate the courgettes by hand, transferring pollen from the male flowers to the female flowers, you know, an intimate connection with them. (laughs) So they flourished. But some of the other things in the garden that I was growing, they got the same physical situation. They got compost, they got water, but they didn't get quite as much of my love. And the the classic example for me was spring onions, which I I still don't like the flavour of spring onions. Um, I tried growing those for three years in a row. I grew the seeds in a nursery bed in the greenhouse, in nursery trays in the greenhouse, and uh, picked them out, planted them out, they got watered. They grew to be about, you know, uh, three inches high. And three years in a row, they mysteriously fell over and died. And I never found a physical cause for it.
0: Interesting. So, and, and are they growing now? Are they thriving now at Fintorn with different people gardening?
1: Other people grow them fine, yes. It was, it was my issue. It was, they were my part of my teaching, you know, my learning, you know, they weren't getting my love.
0: And can I ask, so I remember reading that book about Findhorn, and by the time you got there, Eileen Caddy wasn't there anymore, and the giant cabbages? No, she was
1: still in the community. Oh, okay. Peter Caddy was still here too for the first year. Okay. And then they they divorced and he left, but she lived until 2006, this was in 1978 when I came.
0: And she stayed at the community all that time?
1: Yes, she was here.
0: And then, because the giant cabbages were such a a key part, because like you, I grew up in Scotland and never heard of Findhorn until I came as far away as England. It wasn't quite as far as you. But the capacity to grow things on what looked like totally inhospitable, this kind of sand next to the caravan park, seemed to be really deeply part of what Findhorn was about. So was that no longer the case even by the time you got there in the the late 70s?
1: Well, the gardens are still here. People are still working with the same relationship, Okay, not all the gardeners have the same manifestation of connection that Dorothy McLean, the third founder, did she was the one who received the Deva messages. Right. I've never received the Deva message. I, I don't get that, but I do get communication from nature in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's how you label it. Flashes of insight. So the it's the medium, the means is not the important thing, it's the connection. Yeah. Now, there aren't 40 pound cabbages grown here anymore. And when I was the gardener, I was wanting to grow 40 pound cabbages. I really you know, did my best. And I realised after a little while of not being successful, that was the wrong thing. Right. Because in a sense, a 40 pound cabbage is just another expression of materialism, a bigger cabbage. You know, that is not the point. That was the flag to draw attention. Right. The point was co-creation with nature developing a different relationship brilliant and that is still what is happening here there aren't 40 pound cabbages anymore that story is out there it still brings lots of people you've obviously heard about it many people come here because they hear about that so that function doesn't need to happen anymore but it's implementing it co-creation with nature Work is love in action is one of the three core principles of this community. So it's working with love. And what I found was that plants
0: respond to love. Hmm. And then growing stops becoming work, I'm guessing, and becomes part of your life because... Many
1: people know that plants respond to love. You know, how many of us know somebody who's got a green thumb? Yeah. You know? Some elderly relative who dotes over their house plants or their roses, you know, and they shine. Yeah. They are doing exactly the same thing. Right. They may not express it in that way. They may not even be conscious of it and able to articulate it, but that is the same thing. So uh, plants are like children or pets. Many people have this experience with pets. Pets behave better when they're loved. Children respond and become more whole and more alive when they're surrounded by love. So one of, one of my deep learnings at Findhorn is that all of life, all that is, and that includes so-called inner, inanimate objects as well, responds to love. And love draws forth the inner potential and spirit within all that it is directed towards. So it strengthens, amplifies and nurtures the life force of everything. Brilliant. And that is a two-way process because if I give love to a plant or if I give love to my son or to the cat that my wife and I have, you know, they benefit from it. But I actually benefit too because, remember, you are the love you create. And when I express love, I become a fuller person. I become a bigger person. I become a more spiritually embodied person on the planet. I'm fulfilling my purpose. Yes. So, yeah, this was part of my training. Findhorn was described by Peter Caddy, one of the founders, as a training center for world servers,
0: Hmm.
1: training center for world servers. And that resonated deeply. And that is one of the major reasons why I came back to live here, because I've always, as I said earlier, had this feeling I need to do something positive to make a difference in the world. Right. And the training here is not, it's not a curriculum, it's not a university course that's laid out. It happens spontaneously, it happens perhaps without any clear and explicit guidance. Sometimes there is, but often it just happens spontaneously and of its own accord. So that was part of it. After four years in the garden, I moved into education and I ran the educational programs here, the Experience Week as it's called, for a year and a half which was great. I felt like I could help provide the context, the vessel for people to have similar sorts of experiences to what I had when I was uh, a guest. Hmm. And that was meaningful and valuable, but it never felt like this is, my heart is, is not as fully engaged in this as it is with work with nature. I need to do something with nature. That's what's really calling me. So in 1985, I had a series of dreams and sometimes I have dreams which speak to me really clearly. You know, most of the time they don't. But this series of dreams was very profound. And it was about a community in India called Oroville, which is closely linked with Finhorn. And I'd heard about it when I first arrived in 78, but I didn't think much about it. It's an interesting community, nothing to do with me. But I began having these dreams about Oroville and this was actually in 1984, I went in 1985, I had these dreams in 1984 and um, they ended up with me getting into a car and one of my dreams of somebody who'd lived at Findhorn who'd previously been in Oroville and in the dream in his car I fell asleep and in the dream um, the car stopped and he woke me up and said Alan we're here I was time to get out and I got out of the car I was in Oroville and at the same time I was finding information brochures about Oroville in one of the community lounges so this is how spirit speaks to me you know I don't get guidance a clear message but things like this happen
0: I've learned to pay attention I think very few people get that sense of of a, a download of plain text, and I think it's really important for people listening that they understand that paying attention to the nudges that the universe gives us is a way to be able to come into your own power and have the courage to follow to follow your heart, as you're saying, and that when you do that, the nudges in my experience, then become more explicit. Is that your experience also?
1: Absolutely. It's
0: like paying
1: attention to what are what we call coincidences. Two or three people say the same thing in the space of a day. That's a message. Yeah. I need to pay attention to that. I need to act on that. You know, the spirit is speaking to me. Yes. And I think sometimes it's because maybe on some level, I'm not as sensitive as Eileen Caddy or Dorothy McLean who could meditate and get a clear message directly you know my body is tuned a bit differently so the messages come from third parties you know and I think all of us get these communications and the challenge the task us is to recognize them and sometimes it's different ways some people get it through their dreams some people get it through going to extreme sports or when they're singing in the shower to themselves every morning they get a flash of insight or when they're out jogging you know yeah. um, they get ideas yes you know so it's. What, what is it that works for each individual? There's no blueprint that's the same for all of us. So for me, it's learning to pay attention to these things. Spirit Speaks. Now, the other thing about going to Oroville was I had no money at the time. The money I'd saved in Canada had been used up to come to Findhorn and join the community. So I had a friend who was also interested in trees and going to Oroville. And we began talking about this and said, well, how can we go? And we didn't have money. And one day I was sitting talking with her and I got a phone call. And at the time I lived in this big old hotel building that the community owns at Findhorn. And there was one telephone for like 40 people. You know, it was in the main reception area. So somebody came and said, "Alan, there's a phone call for you." Um, so I went to answer it and pick up this phone, and the voice on the other end says, "Oh, hi. Is that Alan Watson Featherstone?" "Yes. My name is Nick Galley. I'm calling from Greenpeace uh, uh, to tell you that you've won first prize in our annual Christmas raffle—a thousand uh, pounds in cash. I'd like to come and uh, <laughs> arrange a presentation, you know, so we can get some publicity." "Wow." And I- I did a lot of uh, a lot of fundraising for Greenpeace in those days. I used to organize a local sponsored walk. I sold raffle tickets and did various other things. So I've been supporting them a lot. So um, a few raffle tickets left over. I paid for one or two myself, and this was, <laughs> I won this first prize. So I went back to this friend and I said, you're not going to believe this, because um, I I'd, I'd said to her, I trust that if it's really right for me to go to Oroville, the money will appear.
0: Oh, what a... Better way. Yes.
1: So, yes, that was why I went to Oroville. That was how I went there. And this was part of my ongoing education because the training at Findhorn is not just learning about work is love in action and that everything flourishes in an atmosphere of love, it's also about what we call the laws of manifestation and the laws of manifestation are that if I'm following my deepest calling in life, if I'm following my mission for why I'm here on earth, the universe provides what I need to achieve that. Yes And sometimes what it provides is unexpected. It's not maybe what I always thought but if I can look at it with that deeper perspective there's always yeah there's always a truth in that and there's something to be gained and something to be learned from it. So the experience of Oroville was very important for what became my life work, and I'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I think this the law of manifestation sounds to me so important because in this area, we end up with a lot of people who speak about a law of abundance, which is, as far as I can tell, if you want something hard enough, you can get it. But what I heard you say was, if I am following my deepest calling, if my heart is in alignment with the all that is, with the heart-mind of the universe, then I will be supported in the action that the universe needs of me, which seems to me it's it's not so far different, but it is significantly different mm-hmm. from that. That's fantastic. So thank you for what is about to become part one of our two-part conversation. We will hold it there and be back next week, people, with the other half, which Alan and I are going to carry on recording around about now. So that's it for the first part of our conversation. Enormous thanks to Alan for the clarity of his expression and for the inspiring story of his life. As you will have gathered, we hadn't planned for this to be two parts, but if you are listening at the time of first transmission, which is to say 17th of March, and Alan's ideas and thoughts and the story of his life have spoken to you and you think that you're nearly there, or you'd like to be there, but you don't quite know how, to interrogate your heart and find out if you are following whatever we call it, your heart's true path, your true calling, something that makes your heart sing. Because this Saturday, the Equinox, March 20th, we're running a gathering. I didn't even know that's what Findhorn calls its conferences, but that's what we call our online workshops, whatever it is that we run through Accidental Gods. We've been planning this since the December solstice, but it seems very timely now because the aim is to help you to do that, to help you connect with your heart, to help you to know when you've got that sense of resonance within that tells you that, yes, this, this here now is on your life's path, to help you identify when you are really in alignment with your calling. The plan is to spend six hours really looking into all aspects of intuition because I think for most of us, it's a muscle we need to exercise and practice is the key. But anyway, it is what it is. It's online because COVID and you can sign up on the events page of the website at accidentalgods.life It's running from three o'clock in the afternoon till nine o'clock in the evening UK time on Saturday, so hopefully as many of you in other time zones as possible can come along. So join us if you can. And all that aside, Alan and I will be back next week with the second part of this conversation. And in the meantime, as ever, thanks to Caro for awesome sound production and for the signature music. Thanks to Faith for the website and the tech behind the scenes. And thanks to you for being there for being our audience, for being the reason that we are here. If you want to support us, there is a Patreon page at accidentalgods.life and that's where you'll find the show notes with the links to everything that Alan is doing and to all of the other podcasts. You'll also find the membership program there if you want to delve more deeply into conscious evolution. And as ever, if you know of anybody else who would like to be part of the Generative Dance of the World, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.